0: A new era is unraveling before us, and Tangent is back with a new limited series in collaboration with NYU Shaq Institute of Real Estate. Tangent unites real estate lovers, technology adopters, and passionate creators in an effort to improve our cities and our built environment. Join us every month to learn how PropTech innovators, academic experts, and real estate leaders are solving our present-day challenges. If you're working on a PropTech solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that make our cities better and would like your mission featured on our Features segment, feel free to email us at tangentcommunity@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And remember, stay curious and always be learning. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen.
1: And I'm Shami Weissman.
0: Today on Tangent, we have the opportunity to learn from Zane Jaffer partner at Bluefield Capital, a private equity and venture capital firm investing in commercial real estate and prop tech companies. Zane stepped into the real estate world after he sold his startup called Vungle to Blackstone for $780 million. Hi, Zane. Welcome to Tangent. Where does this podcast find you? I'm in San Francisco
2: and it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much.
1: So, Zane, um, I was reading a bit about your background, and when I say a bit, I mean a lot, because there is so much out there. Uh, Why don't you tell your listeners the three highlights, the three things that they should know about you after listening to this podcast?
2: So, three highlights. I have a British accent, and I was born in the UK. It was very hard for me over there trying to convince people to invest in my idea at the time, because at that time, I'd say UK was a bit conservative and focused a lot more on profitability and revenue. So I moved across to the US and it was crazy. Like uh, people were throwing money at you. Uh, And you know, I I raised a $2 million seed round, built my uh, startup in the mobile advertising space. And that company grew like crazy. Uh, You know, first year we did 850,000, second year we did 15 million, third year of operations we did 56 million, just kept growing until we were making hundreds of millions a year. It was unreal you know a crazy experience after that i sold my company and i wanted to diversify into real estate that's what tech people do right and after having so much of my net worth concentrated in one startup it was terrifying and i swore to myself i want a piece of this real estate game where you've got cash flow coming in you've got appreciation it looks so easy so what did I do? I started um, investing in real estate. I did everything. I did single-family rentals, buying multi-family apartments, investing in projects like self-storage units, and I even did hard money loans to construction projects. Uh, became an LP in many funds, and, and through that experience, I started to learn a lot. From as a as a as an LP, I learned a lot from the people I invested in, and I came across Bluefield Capital. And decided, you know what? Rather than being a solo real estate operator, I think I'll benefit a lot more by joining a private equity firm, which is just, you know, big enough for me to sort of enjoy the scale, but small enough for me to put money in and have a big stake in the in the you know GP. And so that's what I did, and and it blew. i buying real estate for the last few years uh, since I've joined, and uh, it's been a blast. In relation to that, though. Uh, I'm still an entrepreneur at heart, so I had to cure that itch, and I, I, we started a venture capital fund, which invests in prop tech startups. Uh, we're about 14 investments now.
0: Uh, we're, we're doing really well, and we invest across the whole spectrum of early stage prop tech. Fascinating. Um, but yeah, let's talk about your, your investments. You're, you're clearly a diversified uh, investor by now, a diversified professional. You have invested in 14 Uh, Startups focus mainly on early stage, pre-series A, prop tech companies, Uh, and you've also made uh, 34 commercial real estate uh, investments uh, spread out across California, Colorado, Utah, and other states. Uh, which total $1.5 billion worth of real estate. Uh, I would say that qualifies as uh, as diversified besides your, your hedge funds, fixed income stocks and other investments. So, so yeah, tell us more about your investments. Let's start with the tech side. What are some of the exciting companies that you're investing in?
2: When I started out, I had the idea that let me invest in startups that can help our portfolio. A lot of institutional owners of real estate are frustrated that things run in a very inefficient way. And the theory there is, and I actually thought about this. I thought, you know what? Let me go hire a bunch of data scientists. Let me hire some software engineers and let me make our real estate fund really technology focused. It doesn't work like that. And it doesn't work like that because Bluefield has a diversified real estate portfolio throughout the US. You can't realize synergies if you have you know, multifamily apartments in in Montana, and you've got a construction project going on in Idaho, and then you've got, you know, industrial warehouses in Utah, and you've got senior care homes here and hospitality assets there, and assets themselves are far away from each other geographically. And then we we also have third-party managers. So realize, you know what, it doesn't make sense to hire software engineers and data scientists. Instead, we need to find vendors, other software companies, hungry entrepreneurs that really want their first customer, and are willing to help us improve the magic words NOI. So we thought let, let's start partnering with startups and, and you know let's start investing in startups. So that, that was uh, sort of the next evolution. You know we, we can't build a team internally. For some companies it doesn't make sense. You know if you're an institution that just does like brokerage, like a JLL, or you know you, you're a property management firm and that's all you do, like a Greystar, star. They have plenty of engineers and data scientists. But if you're your average real estate investor and you're spread out and you're not concentrated in one area, that it makes sense to bring in technology vendors and so we've invested in things that help our portfolio Any anything that improves noi is my core focus because that's the beauty with real estate if you improve your noi just slightly and you apply a cap rate to that a few thousand dollars in savings or, or profit can be hundreds of thousands of dollars in your valuation for property it blows my mind and so looked at everything you know we, we looked at ways to detect leaks of water in our portfolio we, we've looked at ways to streamline the check-in process in our hotels by bringing in technology there, or reporting and accounting, even ways to extract more revenue from you know our tenants and improve the tenant experience. So, a whole
0: variety of prop tech, really. Fascinating. No, I think it's super interesting how you you provide a, a distribution essentially for for the prop tech companies, the solutions that you invest in. Uh, so that also gives you uh, more credibility and and. Uh, key differentiator from other uh, either generalist or traditional uh, venture capital uh, that maybe don't have such a direct distribution within your your, uh, real estate portfolio where you can really put these solutions into action.
2: And you know, that's really the core of it. When you look at the venture capital landscape, what you're seeing, and this is also happening in real estate too, you're seeing large generalist funds that are getting larger and larger are moving upscale. And then you've got niche players that focus very particularly on a, on a, on a focus. It could be prop tech, it could be FinTech, it could be Metaverse, it could be you know something like that. And, and the theory is that if you're in the middle, you're gonna get crushed. The generalists are going to outperform you and you can't, you can't compete with them because they can write bigger checks and buy their way into deals. They've got more infrastructure and bigger teams. And you can't compete with the niche focused players because they have sector expertise. They have credibility with the founder. You know, you're know, you not just money, you're adding some real value. In real estate, I also see this happening. In, in the real estate sector, you've got funds that are uh, very large. And because of the function of being very large, they attract more LP dollars. They have lower return thresholds. They can you know, make big moves. And then you've got your local player that focuses on a zip code or focuses on an asset class. And it's only really going to own that niche. And if you're in the middle, eventually you're in a dangerous position. Uh, So, yeah, and I think if you look at it from my perspective as a prop tech fund, right, when I come across a founder, I'm no longer just a, a generalist VC who they have to be very elementary with regarding you know, defining terms. We can get straight to the core concepts. We can talk about go-to-market. We can, we can go even further. And for me, de-risks things because if someone says something, I can validate that through my portfolio. If someone's pitching me a startup that can help our industrial warehouses, we, we're building tons of those. And I can talk to brokers, I can talk to them, you know, facilities management, or, or the you know investors behind that. We also have LPs that come from real estate. So I, I felt this, this makes sense. To, to build a venture capital fund focused on Proptech makes a lot of sense.
0: Busy Dev is an NYC-based business development firm that helps early stage technology startups find the right opportunities to scale their businesses. BusyDev provides business development as a service to companies like Clear, a cutting-edge water and air purification system for real estate owners. BusyDev is driving Clear's expansion into the US marketplace. As their business development partner, Busy Dev is finding early adopters across multiple asset classes, connecting its partners with strategic customers who have initiatives around sustainability, ESG, and wellness. BusyDev is ready to help the best early stage startups in the world have a differentiated product and service and are trying to establish their presence and develop their business. You can visit BusyDev's website to learn more at BusyDev.com or email directly the company's founder Jonathan at John at BusyDev.com. That's J-O-N at B-I-Z-Y-D-E-V dot
1: so, Sain, I've heard the story before, right, where real estate funds are starting to invest in prop or VCs that only invest in prop techs trying to test those new companies with their LPs, whatnot, right? And sort of build that one ecosystem that makes sense. I'm curious to hear about your process in particular. What is it that you're looking for in these companies and these founders when they come to present their uh, their ideas to you? Are you looking for a product that is already out in the market? Is there something that, is there a product that you're more open to testing with them in as part of your portfolio, like what is what is your threshold? We started
2: off very rigid, like in making a plan, you can build a great deck, you can put a great fund model together in a spreadsheet and you can clearly set expectations with what you're going to do and what you're not going to do because you have to set some boundaries. As we've progressed, we've loosened our rules and I like to say we break our rules quite often when there's a magnificent founder and it always comes down to the founder themselves. But to give you an example, it made a lot of sense. We own a lot of real estate. Therefore, we should test and pilot products in our portfolio before we make an investment. Awful idea, and I'll tell you why. Real estate moves so slow. By the time I complete that pilot, that startup's either gone bankrupt or they've gone ahead and raised the next round of funding. It takes a long time to get things moving. Even though we have our own portfolio, you have to be realistic. Sometimes fundraising rounds move pretty quickly. And if you're a smart entrepreneur, you're not gonna let it drag on. You're gonna to try to close that funding round as quickly as you can. Uh, and you know, create FOMO as you rightly should, otherwise things will drag on. And this is a, a shift I'm seeing with a lot of real estate investors who want to test out a product. They, they're they gonna miss out eventually. And so. What we did instead is realize, okay, we're not gonna be able to pilot every single company that comes through. So we're gonna do very quick due diligence. We're gonna talk to our team and gonna say, is this something we would pilot? Have you talked to other companies before? How does this company compare? So that's one thing we changed that we were very rigid around. The other thing we changed as a function of that was, I wanted to focus on what I would say is pre-series A. Everyone wants to do pre-series A, you know? Ideally that means they've closed their seed round, they're about to do their A round, and you come in and you say, look, I'm a strategic investor. You should let me invest at the last round's valuation. And you know I did that at the start and it was great because I got into great companies. But the theory there was, here are companies that are mature. When we try to do a pilot with them, they're ready and they just need a little bit more traction before they raise the next round. Again, not a great idea because I found some of the best investments we've made were very idea stage, like pre-seed stage. You know, we, we took a random bet on a pre-seed company. We almost declined them because uh, they were just on that threshold of being a little bit too early. We wanted companies that had at least $100,000 in annual revenue. And for this company, they were probably at thirty k annual revenue or whatever. We made the investment anyway, like, very nervously. Turned out to be one of our fastest growing companies. They've grown, you know, revenue-wise, probably 30 to 40x in just a year, which is crazy. And, you know, multi-million dollar run rates now. We would have missed out if we did that. Right, And the best pre-seed companies, they do so well that if they hit product market fit early, you're not going to get a chance to invest in the seed round. Insiders are going to scoop it up or they're going to get the attention of a top tier fund who's going to pay crazy multiples. See, real estate investors are very cheap. We're very value focused. We always want a discount. We're very valuation sensitive. But why are we trying to minimize our risk when we should be trying to maximize our reward? One of my mentors, Ben Narison, he said to me, it is delusional to try to mitigate your downside risk. It's your upside that you should be trying to focus on. So we've become a little bit less valuation focused, but we are focused on ownership. You know, we were very rigid. Initially, we would say we're going to put $300,000 firm into every single company and we'll raise a couple of hundred thousand dollars more from our LPs. Now it's how do I get two to 3% ownership? without screwing up my entire fund structure, how do I do that? Another thing, this is something we're we're not gonna do, but it is a lesson I learned. I invested in one company and I invested and it was a a $45 million valuation, okay? Very high relative to what early stage investments are. I made that investment and I was like, okay, actually, you know what, I kind of regret that because it's gonna have to return so much more in order to, like if I invest in a a company that's a $5 million pre-money valuation, I can easily see that $5 million company getting to a $50 million valuation, maybe 500. I was so wrong. This company invested in a $45 million valuation 18 months ago is now raising at a 3 billion plus valuation. Sometimes you make these rules and you realize it's just, sometimes it's luck. I think it comes down to the founder. And if you asked me at the beginning, it was always, we need to invest a certain amount at the early stage because then you can get these hundred X returns. The market's nuts. You can make hundred X returns anywhere. <laughs> you know, you just have to come with your game and really own that game.
0: That's right. Yeah. Like the, I see, I see the appeal of standardizing your approach and like, you know, this is what we do and this is our thesis. But anyway, super interesting, Zane. Uh, I want to jump into now the the future of our cities. Talk about something a bit more futuristic, or maybe the time has arrived. How well versed are you with the metaverse?
2: Oh, I, I, love, I love what's going on in the metaverse, I've, I've written about it, and uh, you know, I, I'm looking for startups that operate in that sphere. We have to put a definition on what metaverse means, obviously, because...
0: Yeah. Yes, please. Defi- define it for us. Define the metaverse. Define, uh, you know, digital real estate, NFTs to, to the extent that you, you're comfortable.
2: I think I think the simplest uh, definition I would give it is that a metaverse is an interoperable virtual environment where ideally it is user owned or community owned and operated. It's not centrally owned and it can be accessed through multiple mediums, whether that's your VR headset, whether that's your mobile phone or a web browser. That's not necessarily what the metaverse is today. Uh, when you say Metaverse, a lot of people immediately think of Meta, the company, which is formerly Facebook. And they look at that cringeworthy video of Zuckerberg, you know, talking about what the experience is like. And then there's the really bad definition of virtual real estate and buying land in Manhattan as you could have 250 years ago. And you can do that now in these online Metaverse platforms like Decentraland or Sandbox. Infinity. And there's reason to hate it, Shami, right? Um, it's misleading. And those platforms have potential, but a lot of people coming into it aren't educated and missed out on the crypto boom. And now are like, okay, I want to buy land in Manhattan 250 years ago. Let me go buy some digital pixels. Realizing or not realizing that that's all it is. is. You're not, you're not buying land someone's going to sleep in and live in and develop it but you read the media and you think wow the metaverse is um, just like real estate it's it's absolutely nothing like that
0: there's definitely a lot of hype there's definitely a lot of scams out there like every new technology and a lot of speculation uh there's also a lot of speculation in real life uh, real estate but uh i i agree with you which with the we you know the the thesis now of people oh yeah you can buy land in manhattan when manhattan was starting but Manhattan is scarce, though. At least you know nowadays, like you can't just replicate another Manhattan tomorrow and have that same value and that same attraction. However, the the examples I've seen out there, you know, you have the Central Land, uh, which is one of these uh, metaverses that you mentioned, where uh, you know it's it's sort of a Sims, if a, if you played the the Sims the game back in the day. Uh, and there's like maybe Samsung and a couple of brands that allow you to buy something. And that's about it right now. However, a couple of points. First, tomorrow someone can just create another Decentraland. Uh, so you cannot do that with Manhattan. So I think just from the beginning, comparing real life uh, real estate to digital real estate is going to be a completely different thing. If it's even a thing. And the second thing I want to say is that buying right now on the, on the, on the metaverse Samsung product, it's probably way more, not probably, it's way more inconvenient than just one click buying from Amazon. So maybe it's going to be the new generation that prefers something even more experiential, uh, virtual, but uh, at least right now, you know, the use cases, uh, I don't see any real life use cases, uh, which is the next topic. Uh, Zane, uh, I have here, we have here six use cases. Uh, that are, you know, around digital real estate, around NFTs, around, you know, the intersection of, of the blockchain technology with real estate. I'm going to throw six topics and you can say, you know, there's potential or it's complete BS, you know, short answers. So first, fractional ownership of real estate to enable greater liquidity.
2: Oh, I- absolutely. I, I think uh, we we saw- we saw versions of this with CrowdStreet and other platforms where you could buy fractional pieces of real estate. What well, the problem was that it was fully centralized with one entity. And I think what the blockchain offers here is a decentralized version, which allows immediate... Think about it, being able to sell a piece of your home to someone sitting in a different country. It could be the Middle East, it could be in Latin America, and they can buy that piece of it without all these... Uh, Access issues. So it's probably one of the most fundamental disruptive. Like that, that'd be the number
0: one most obvious use case for me. Great, great to hear. I also think there's a lot of opportunity there to democratize real estate investing, un- unlocking a lot of value, especially in emerging economies, like you mentioned. Next, uh, disintermediating uh, some of the intermediaries in real estate, title escrow, uh, you know, t- deed, ownership ledger. Could we use blockchain more effectively for that? Hell yes, absolutely. And.
2: I'll dive into that a bit more. People think about disintermediating because, oh, you don't have to go through the bank or the escrow agent or the title company. It's not that. What blockchain offers you through smart contract is the ability to automate workflows. Often the real estate industry is just very slow and bureaucratic. Deal can take months and months to close because it has to go through many layers. Where I think the power is, isn't necessarily disintermediating. It's making things more efficient, because I think if you try to disintermediate, look, as a, as a venture capitalist, I can tell you, if you try to crush the agents, they control a lot of distribution and access. And people would rather try something true and tested when they're gambling with the net worth here. You know, if, if your home is your largest net worth, be very careful. You don't want to just try this experimental platform. So I think it's the agents that embrace the blockchain to optimize their workflows are going to do well. But I can also see a later on version where they're completely disrupted and it's all governed you know, by,
0: by a, a community. Completely agree. And uh, yeah, the whole element on decentralization, I think there's a lot there. Uh, however, there's a reason why we have centralized a lot of the internet because it's convenient because of the same efficiencies. So I do want to see the, you know, I don't think, I think it's also wrong to think Oh, super centralized or super decentralized. I think we're going to go towards decentralization. However, I think there's always, uh, we'll always find convenience uh, and and some trust, you know, reliability in having a trusted third party, Uh, like you said. And I didn't mean uh, disintermediate that intermediary is completely, but you're right. Technology, you know, you either adopt technology or technology will, will end up eating you one day. Or your job.
1: I hear you guys when when you say like, yeah, I, I like this use case. I mean, it, it's been done already, right? But when we say like democratizing access to real estate, right? I mean, anyone can go in right now and like buy a share of Fornado, buy a share of Vessel Green. There is access to real estate that uses technology, right? I mean, it is buying public equity. So I feel like we we as a whole should be doing a better job at explaining like why this is important, right? It's because It's different type of asset classes, or it's like actually picking one asset versus like a full portfolio. But I don't know. I think there's, this is a like huge tangent for it. But I just think there's like so much more to explore there and so much more that we need to educate the masses on what this means uh, versus just using sort of buzzwords, you know, which is, it's hard to do, obviously, especially if we're just like having a, like a short conversation. But this topic sort of like boggles my mind. I just like keep on going a bit in circles.
2: And Shami, and, you're under something there because we're able to buy... Today, through stock exchanges, fractional ownership in massive companies with very complicated you know, revenue models and production supply chains, why can we not trade real estate like hedge funds can trade other assets in a quant driven way? And I think all of these buzzwords really point to that need. We want to see real estate instantly traded without too many processes and barriers. And right now, real estate is the purview of the rich. If you're, if you're wealthy, you have access to investment-grade products that generate great returns, and if you're not, you have access to archaic mortgages and, you know, credit criteria you need to meet, and it takes forever to, to own and live the American dream. And it shouldn't be like that. It should be instant and quick and democratized in that way.
0: In today's digital age, users look for offline and online experiences to connect with their favorite brands. You've probably heard the word NFTs a lot by now, but you're still not sure what they are or how they can help your business. Building digital communities for your business, your service, your shopping center, your office building or your city is as important but also as complex as ever. Here's where Jelly comes into play. Jelly has reinvented the following experience for businesses and brands to strengthen brand loyalty, customer engagement, and monetization. The team at Jelly takes care of all the strategy and technology needed for you to launch and implement your own brand loyalty and engagement programs while creating value for your business. Jelly provides a white glove NFT marketplace to leverage the power of your community so you can focus on your core business. To learn more, go to thejelly.io and book a 30-minute call with the team. That's T-H-E-J-E-L-L-Y dot I-O. All right, so next topic, a topic that I know it's very dear to your heart, very dear to you want to solve uh, maybe in our lifetime or the next lives, uh, which is the housing affordability and supply crisis uh, in this country. And it's not only uh, in the U.S., but across the world. Uh, so in the U.S. we've gone from being oversupplied of housing units uh, back in 2009 where we had over you know oversupplied by two million, to now we're undersupplied by 1.8 million, almost the same amount. So we're missing nearly two million homes in the U.S. for people. Meanwhile, we have uh, places like the Bay Area, a metropolitan area with with eight million people that has nearly 50% of the land zone for single family homes i mean this is where the jobs are uh this is where you know silicon valley still and will be it, it, you know single family home zoning is really one of the big culprits here of the crisis
2: yeah i'd say it's not just about building homes for the sake of building homes but the new types of homes that are being developed are homes that have much more staying power are much more economic uh, are much more affordable with you know the rise of prefab modular homes and Boxable is a company I invested in, we can talk about that. But also they are more environmentally friendly. They are we need homes like that, you know, not just homes for the sake of having homes. Uh, and then there's also regulation too, like ADUs, having accessory dwelling units, particularly in California, that gives someone the ability to to bring in a, a small unit into their backyard and create an extra you know, revenue stream or an extra house for someone. And I think regulation like that is also really key. If you're going to try to just uh, focus on zoning and construction, that's going to take a long time. And you know, even at Bluefield, we, we've gone from now buying properties to the point where it's cheaper for us to construct properties, and this goes in cycles. And it ebbs and flows. Eventually you have too much construction, too much supply, and therefore it makes sense to, you know, not invest in new construction but start buying, because that's where the supply demand balances. Now it's cheaper to buy existing homes. Eventually though, existing homes become so expensive it's cheaper to construct. So it always goes in a balance.
0: Interesting. Yeah, no, I I hear you with the new with the new laws and new regulation. Like for example, uh, the state of Oregon and the city of Minneapolis both banned single family zoning outright um, and then a couple of laws in California do suggest positive change is coming. Uh, I think in California the one you mentioned they're allowing now duplexes and, and adUs uh, accessible accessory dwelling units uh, everywhere uh, and you know this will encourage cities to allow more housing density and by housing density we mean two or more like we're not talking about 500 unit complexes yet but you know this is a step in the right direction.
1: So saying, I looked at this investment, I, I looked at the website, it's so interesting, I'm pretty sure it was Elon Musk living in one of those, or a similar one, right? So tell us more about the value proposition with, behind Boxable, why you guys invested in it, and what's out on the horizon for Boxable.
2: Boxable was one of those companies where the strength of the founders, uh, and Galliano, who I, I talk to frequently, I talked to him on a call, and I was sort of you know, like, okay, I, I'm skeptical. I've seen a lot of this. I talked to him and I was just like, oh my God, I'm in. I, this guy's gonna change the world. Like he's one of those guys who, who who thinks big and you just know he's gonna go somewhere. So first I'd say the bet wasn't just on the product. It was a bet on on the founder himself, or, you know, the co-founders, right? Him and his dad, which is a big story, by the way. Then just the idea, it's just so beautiful, so elegant when you look at the computer unit it's environmentally friendly it can handle earthquakes and floods and hurricanes i mean everything you could put on your dream board of what you want it to do this thing does and what i liked about galliano was he really leveraged the crowd so he put this investment on crowdfunding platforms and it did so well and he also figured out how to get large enterprise contracts the ones i can talk about you know multi multi million dollar contracts with the government for example i think the department of defense Um, And he's taken the product now to a point where there's a billion dollars plus in pre-orders. I mean, that's a billion dollars plus in
0: pre-orders, you know, That's a good problem to have.
2: And then the other idea behind Boxable is that he's thinking in a very modular stackable framework where you can stack boxes on top of each other. And you could technically build apartments and buildings and however high you want to build them, however wide you want to build them. And I just thought to myself, like, Wow, this is how housing should be. Now they've started to, you know, they've got a beautiful factory in, in Nevada and they are shipping products or they're shipping their boxes, boxables rather. And then the other thing I liked about the company too was they had re-engineered the process to realize that a lot of companies do prefab modular homes. The challenge is you can just put a sticker price on it, but that sticker price is misleading because it doesn't account for the headache and cost of delivering. When you transport these, you need to have police escorts. You need to get permits. Yeah. You, you, why? Because it's a massive, big, you know, box. They engineered things. It's human in-
0: Legos. Human Legos being transported cross-country, yeah.
2: And that, that's a hazard. You have to close, close roads down. And the cost of delivering these can be more than the cost of the unit itself, which is crazy. So Boxer will realize, let's make this so small that it could fit on the back of a truck or a pickup truck even. Right? It can be towed. And, you know, they took a funny video of a competitor right outside of their factory, who's like, you know, on the road and had to close it down with police escorts. And they took a video of it like, this is what our competitors do, here's us. And like immediately, you know, the boxes can go on a truck, they can be unfolded when they get to the destination, very easy to install. So it wasn't just about, he's not just a founder who thought about the product, he thought about the ease of use and access and delivery to the consumer. And as an investor, you can't be, you can't fall in love with just the product, you need to focus on distribution as well. And he he nailed distribution and is now clearly the market leader in the space.
0: No, I think that's fascinating. And, like, you know, that's one of those things that you probably thought at first hand that's a second priority. Oh, shipping, yeah, we'll make, we'll, we'll make them arrive to the site. But that's ended up being a crucial component of the formula. So fascinating. Uh, last but not least, take this wherever you want, Zane. But if you had a magic wand, we give you a magic wand right now. What is one aspect or two aspects of your city uh, that you would uh, improve?
2: Uh, but I think it comes down to what all of us have a shared passion around, the affordability crisis. I think regulators getting in our way, our being society, not as an evil developer, right? I mean, as stakeholders in society, our uh, regulators keep you know, doing nonsense things I'm really embarrassed about the state of California today, how backwards we are. I compare that to other states like Miami, you know, and and New York, where the governors are taking their salaries in cryptocurrency. What are we doing here? We're taxing innovation. And, you know, we're making it very difficult. And I'm very, you know, upset about the state of things in California, the homelessness problem, uh, the level of crime and so little that's happening to you know, let people get away when there's clear evidence they committed a crime, you know, shoplifting. And I, I'm, I'm scared to take my children to, to the mall. I've done that and it's not been a pleasant experience. And I see, you know, Florida, I see Texas, I see other states doing great things. And I really worry that this great city that I live in, San Francisco, is just not doing the things it needs to do, getting in its own way. I worry there's a risk it'll become like, you know, how Detroit
0: became eventually. I hear you. know. thanks for that. Uh, you know, I I can tell it it comes from the heart, and you know, it's it's where you are, where you're uh, spending your your time. I I think the only way forward is is like you said, collaboration with between the between the state officials and private developers. And a lot of these private developers are are you know they're independent uh, builders, mom and pop builders. They're not corporations so it's like everyone's on the same side here everyone just wants the city to work they're just uh, need to align those incentives uh and,
2: and edward you know I, you you said magic wand and i think i answered that question in light of having a magic wand these are complex societal issues there's no quick fix it's very easy for me to rant i'm very grateful i made a lot of money in california but if i had a magic wand of course i want the city to be better of course i want it to be bustling and better booming
0: of course that's why we give you the magic wand to dream big Zane, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for sharing uh, your time and your knowledge and experience with us. Uh, where can uh, Tangent listeners find you and learn more about your investments?
2: Yeah, proptechvc.com is a website that uh, I'm, I'm developing that'll showcase some of my uh, you know, investments and work. Uh,
0: zane at proptechvc.com is my email address too. Great. Listeners can find that link in the episode description. Uh, zane, Jaffer, Thank you once again for being with us. It's been a pleasure and hope to see you more of, of your successes. Thank you, Edward and Shami. It's been a great pleasure being on the show. Thank you, guys. This episode was produced by Edward Cohen and Shami Wiseman. If you like what you heard, please share Tangent with a friend. Special thanks to Sam Shandon and everyone at NYU Shack. Tangent's artwork was designed by Michael Lowy. Thanks for listening to Tangent and remember, collaboration is our superpower as a species, so stay curious and always be learning.